If Jesus were to um, appear today in our, in our modern times, where would he go to church? The, the Baptists would like to say he'd go to a Baptist church. The Roman Catholics would like to say he'd go to a Roman Catholic church. I'd like to say he'd come here. <clears throat> the front row's open. But if he followed the pattern he did when he came before, he'd go to a synagogue. And that's kind of where I want to go and talk about today because we're going to be talking about Judaism. And when we, we talk about Judaism, we're talking about something really interesting for us. And it's ex- extremely complicated for us. I think it's complicated also because if you look at all the um, things we're going to talk about, if, you're, if you haven't been with us, I'll explain what we're doing in a minute. But if you look at the Venn diagram between Christianity and Judaism, there's a huge overlap. So you think, okay, we, we, you know, we agree with the Hebrew Bible, all these different things. But the parts that don't overlap in that Venn diagram are really, really big things, as we're going to talk about. So that's where we're, we're going to head today, and I'll say more. But we're doing this as part of a sermon series where we're looking at Christianity and world religions. So if you're joining us, that's what's happening. We started out talking about why do this. A theology of religions. Last week, we looked at Buddhism and kind of compared it to Christianity. This week, we're doing Judaism. Next week, we're going to do Hinduism, then Islam, and then Christianity. That's where we're headed. But today, we're going to talk about Judaism. And as we do so, I want to start with just a few caveats. Um, The first of which is just to own that I'm a Christian. And I believe the ultimate revelation of God has been in the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to see what God is like, you look at Jesus, what he taught, what he did, how he lived, all of that. And I, I'm not able to set that aside. There's no way for me to set that aside. Um, and the second thing is, while I'm not an expert, I want to say that up front as a caveat, I'm not an expert by any means, but I've been diligent in what I'm going to present. So I think it'll be a good introduction and some process for you to think about on this. And then the final thing is that we have limited time. And I want to let you know that um, I have cut today's sermon back. It may still be the longest in this series because it's complicated with this overlap thing. And uh, all of Judaism is important to us. All of it is and how it informs us and what we do with it. But um, so I'm just saying that up front. But where I want to go today is I want to do three things. I'd like to look at the basic history of Judaism, like in a whirlwind. I'd like to look at some of the key beliefs And like we've done every week, I want to do a little bit of compare and contrast with Christianity at the end. Those are the three things that I'd like to do today. And we want to start just right out of the bat, just talking about Judaism. That term really didn't exist until Christianity came on the scene. And it in itself arises in part as a little bit of a compare and contrast to needing a name for that. And I I want to say, too, that as as we use that word, I'm sure you know and understand, but there's, there's not uniformity in this. I don't want to imply that there's uniformity because there's lots of different varieties of Judaism today and lots of different paths that we're going to, that we'll kind of, we're going to get into some of it, but not all of it. But I don't want to suggest that, that like it's one blanket thing that, I'm, that we can kind of present. And the second, uh, along with this, as we start to talk about it, is again to go back and just say this is really complex and you get the story basically of how God presents within history and how he works with one family and where it goes from that. And it's, gonna, it's kind of going to be complex. But what I want to do now is I want to present <clears throat> a little bit of the sweep of biblical history of Judaism. And then I want to do a quick 
try to go from there to where we are today in just the largest big groupings of, of, um, of periods so you can kind of have a way to think about it. So if you start to tell the story about the Jews, you've got to start at the beginning of the Bible and talk about creation. And a lot of this, you know, I should add too that part of the complexity of this is we think we know a lot about Judaism, but we don't. And so I'm going to try to go into some of this, but you may or may not know that, the, like, for example, the story of creation, it gets passed down for a long, long, long time before it ever gets put into writing. And when, we're going to talk about exile later, but when the Jews get put off into exile, they encounter other creation stories. And it's at that time they're like, oh, we better write down what we've inherited, the way we've understood it, the way it's come from God, we're going to write it down. And they do that while they're in the Babylonian exile. And they write down these stories that we hear and that we get. And part of what we get in it is that God intended for, he gave everybody free will in creation. That's the biggest gift he gave us. And I think along with it, I hope that we would remain innocent as children. But of course, we didn't. In the end, um, we chose to make decisions that pushed God away and embraced evil at some level. And that's ultimately what sin is, pushing God out of his proper place and where he is. And you can hear that in the voice of God. If you go back and read the Genesis account of creation, after this all happens, you'll hear God cry out, Adam, where are you? And now I want to suggest that that's a voice and a thing you can hear God say to his people throughout the entire Bible. Where are you? Where have you gone? I want to be with you. Kind of a thing that's taking place. And ultimately going to that place results in... Um, consequences. <clears throat> Eventually we see the flood take place. We see the Tower of Babel. We see different, different parts of what, where evil goes and what it does. All of that is taking you up through the very beginning chapters of Genesis. And then we start to get to the most important family that we're going to hear about in, within the Hebrew Bible as God begins to deal with Abram or Abraham. This happens um, back in basically the cradle of humanity in, in Ur, which is scholars would tell you today that that is modern day Iraq and that they take their best educated guess that God's call to Abraham is taking place in about the year 2000. And the part of the call to him, and he's ultimately going to leave based on faith. He's going to leave his homeland, his people, his relatives, whatever, and head out based on this call and on faith. And part of what God has promised him is that you're going to be blessed and you're going to have basically this international empire kind of thing. Your, your descendants, your presence, your influence is going to go to all these different places and, and go on this way. Um, and you're also going to get the promised land of, of Cana. And, you know, you'll see throughout the pages of Scripture again and again how God uses sort of unlikely people. So sometimes when we begin to think, not why me? Um, God has always used the unlikely. And I, and I think starting right here, for sure, right? I mean, Abram is 75 years old. Sarah is 65 years old. And, he's, and, they don't, and he's, God is telling them, you're going to have all these descendants like the stars and all this kind of stuff. And um, it's a bit hard to believe, but it happens, right? They have a child, Isaac. And then uh, Isaac, of course, has Esau and Jacob. And then ultimately through all these stories, so I'm sliding by real fast because we don't have time. Jacob gets the blessing. Some of y'all know that whole story. You could soap opera stuff. 
And then, again, twists and turns we, want, we don't have time to go into. Ultimately, the Jewish people coming from those roots end up in Egypt. And they're there for 400 years. Those 400 years, they're slaves. And they are growing as a people. And then ultimately, Moses is raised up to be their liberator and to bring freedom and to get them out of slavery. And <clears throat> Moses does this and heads them out in, you know, on this journey where they're going to be in the desert for 40 years. And then when they finally come to Mount Sinai, they get a covenant. Now, we're going to say a number of things about covenants. You know, one we had with Abraham, we've already sort of mentioned that he's going to be blessed and all these descendants and all, all the people of the earth are going to be blessed by him. And then Mount Sinai, God is making a covenant with the people. And he's saying, most importantly, even before he gives them the Ten Commandments, he's saying and telling them, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be these special people. And here are some things you're going to have to follow, kind of a deal, right? And it's worth pausing here for a minute to just say something about covenant for a minute. Because covenant's like this deepest commitment kind of thing that we have. And it's knee deep within Judaism. And I'll say more about that in a few minutes. But you can think about a number of the covenants that are in there. And, you know, we think about this one with Abraham. We think about the one in Mount Sinai. Later, as you heard, kind of heard in our reading, the one with King David and about his, uh, his descendants and, and reign and thrones and how that's all going to go. And this idea with covenants. And they're all just, there's a kind of a wide range about how they work. There's some that are unilateral. I would suggest to you the covenant with Abraham was unilateral. He wasn't asking. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of back and forth on it. Mount Sinai is conditional. And you look at some of the, um, it's interesting to look at some of the Judaic scholars talking about this. Um, I think, of, for example, of William Green, who, who says, you go back and look at these covenants. Notice how at Mount Sinai things are a little bit different. Because when that covenant is given, um, part of the covenant ceremony is having blood thrown on all the people. And it's basically a warning talking about hang with this because there may be consequences if you don't hold this up. And you're going to think about that as things go on from there. So there's a whole lot to be said about the covenant aspect of this. So to pick our story back up, they ultimately, 40 years in the desert, they ultimately do come into the promised land. And they get to enjoy this land of milk and honey and the place where the Canaanites have been. And that we have the time of the judges. And all this goes on. But eventually... The Jewish people, like many of the other peoples in the world, begin to cry out to God saying, we want to be like everybody else and have a king. We need a king. Give us a king. We want a king. And eventually God gives them what they ask for. And he has Samuel raise up Saul. And Saul becomes the first king. And you get this, uh, this episode where he's the king um, of, of the, whole, you know, the whole land. And eventually, he, he ends up becoming sort of a victim of his own power in a civil war, and he dies. And there's fascinating stories to read about that in the pages of Scripture. And then King David um, comes to the throne. And if you remember how this goes, King David has a beautiful reign until he falls off into, falls deeply into sin, right? And then things are not pretty after that. He, he suffers after that. And then we kind of go on from there. And then things are going to start to begin to go in, in a wor continually worse direction, right? His son Solomon 
is going to do some great things. He's known for his wisdom, but also he's going to sort of be the stereotypical Oriental ruler at the time. He's going to become a dictator. He's going to have his thousand wives and concubines or whatever. Just you know, but the thing he does that's great, of course, is he builds the first temple, uh, and he does it in the year 950. And he builds this great temple, and you can go read about its anor- how it's adorned and all this in the Hebrew Bible. And then Solomon's sons are not able to hold it together. And then things begin to break at that point. And you get the kingdom broken into two parts. You get the northern kingdom based in Samaria, and you get the southern kingdom based in Jerusalem. That's sort of the scenario that we get in that time frame. Meanwhile, over on the side, you've gotten these national powers beginning to develop hugely, right? Assyria and Babylon. And you get this time where the Jews are struggling to keep the covenant that they've made and trying to live the way God wants them to live. And God raises up a number of prophets that are going to hammer on them a bit. You can think about Isaiah and Hosea and Amos and all these different ones who are telling them, come back, you know, get into this right place. And they don't. And at the end of the day, uh, in 721, uh, Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom, and it's gone. So we've, we've ended that part of the history. And the southern kingdom, Judah, continues on, um, and they survive all of that, and they continue along, and we go down the road a ways, and then we get to the continuing rising power of Babylon, and then King Nebuchadnezzar comes down into Jerusalem in the 590s, and does the first exile. And he grabs a number of people and he hauls them off back to Babylon. But that's not the big one, right? The next decade, in the 580s BC, he comes back down. They haven't done what they're supposed to do. And now he comes down with a big old fist. And he takes all the people of power, all the intelligentsia and all the people who've got power there, and he scoops them up and he hauls them off to Babylon. And significantly... He destroys, in the year 586, the first temple and completely does away with it, and it's, and it's destroyed. So now we're, like, things are dire. Northern kingdom's gone. The southern kingdom's been headed off into exile, and things look dark, right? And people are crying out, where is God in all of this? Luckily, there are a number of prophets who have helped raise up a remnant, um, you can think of Isaiah and Ezekiel and some of the others who've had this remnant. And maybe what God is teaching the people at the time is they wonder, where is God in all this? Is to go into what this tension is between a God who is holy and a people who are broken and sinful. And, and how that works out in that tension. And ultimately, Christ, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Christians are going to say that tension is only ultimately healed in the person of Jesus Christ down the road. But that's the tension maybe perhaps that they're learning. And then we go on from there and uh, God raises up or however it comes to about, you see other powers beginning to rise. And in Persia, you get um, Cyrus coming to power. And ultimately Cyrus is, I, I like the character of Cyrus in the Bible because he's one of the few people sometimes when people want to say, well, God only uses these holy people and this and this. Cyrus is not a, not a Jew. And he's certainly, obviously, not a Christian. We're way back. And, but God, it, Scripture is going to tell you explicitly that God uses him for his purposes. 
And he's going to ultimately send a remnant of people back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild and to begin to do things. And you get, eventually, as part of that, we're going to get the second temple getting built in the year, finished in the year, about the year 515. This is a time when um, second Isaiah is on the scene. And all those readings you guys hear during Holy Week about the suffering servant are going to be coming out of uh, second Isaiah during this time, talking about the one that's going to be raised up and all these different things. That I've presented right there is the sweep of Jewish history in the Hebrew Bible. Some people have summarized everything I've just said by saying it's a history of making covenants and breaking them. Maybe that's a little pessimistic. I don't know. But I want to try to um, turn from there and try to take you from the the end of the Hebrew Bible to today. And obviously, we don't have time for me to do just a whole bunch with that, but I want to try to do just a few things with that. And I'm going to follow the writings of a Judaic scholar named Jacob Neusner, who divides this period of time um, basically into four different periods. And I'm going to say just a little bit about each of these. Um, The first of which is sort of the formative period that goes from the time when the first temple is destroyed um, in the year 586 to when the second temple is destroyed by the Romans in the year 70. And what happens during that time period? And part of what happens, there's a whole lot that happens during that time, right? Because the people get carried off into exile, as I mentioned before. It's when the Torah is going to get written, put into writing. You have all these oral traditions. I'm not saying that's when it got created. Everything had been oral tradition till then. But now it's going to get put down into writing. And some of that is because they're confronting other religions. And so they're writing this down and putting all these pieces together and beginning to do that. And you've got this whole Levitical religion, all these different rules and laws coming into place in a meaningful way. And then ultimately, to kind of go fast forward, it all comes down to a rebellion that takes place in uh, the 70s and leads to the destruction of the second temple. And our gospel lesson today, where Jesus is talking about how you're going to see the whole thing come down, ultimately is fulfilled we would say gets fulfilled in the year 70 when the temple, not one stone gets left, you know, so to speak, the whole thing crumbles down. There's one wall. Okay. But the whole thing is going to come down. That's the first stage, right? This whole deal of getting it organized. And then the second uh, period of time, just to kind of keep this thing moving quickly, is what's called a formative age of Judaism, or it's um, called Talmudic Judaism. And this is the time when it's going to go from the destruction of the second temple by the Romans in the year 70, up to sometime in the 7th century A.D. So that's kind of the range of where it's going to go. And with the temple being destroyed, and there's no third temple that's built, Judaism is going to change. And I'll say more about that in a few minutes, about a number of the different changes that happens. But some of the big things that happen during this time is now worship is going to become... More, the whole religious life is going to become more focused on the synagogue and the family. That's the first piece of it. And then you get the whole development of the Mishnah. And, um, you know, when I first went off to seminary, I didn't know hardly any of this stuff, I got to say. But let me just state it, and I'm sure somebody who's a scholar will correct me on it. But um, I'll say the simple way of saying this is, is there's a belief um, that Moses received sort of two versions of the law. 
one that was written that's ultimately going to become the Torah and one that was oral. And the oral one eventually gets recorded and it's the Mishnah, right? So that's kind of the, the, the idea of what happens with that. And then along with that, one more name that you'll see developing this, and there's going to be two of these, is the Talmud, which is the Mishnah plus a bunch of commentary with it. And you get two versions. You get one from Babylon, and you get one from Palestine. So you get two different versions of that. Those are some of the big pieces that take place in this second period. The third period that takes place is sort of the domination of rabbinic um, Judaism that will go from this where we were in the 7th century all the way up to about the 19th century. And um, during this period, they have to deal with lots of different things um, that take place, right? They have to deal with what's happening in terms of Christianity, what happens in terms of Islam. There are a bunch of different changes, but that's, it's, that's what's flourishing. That's what's out there. That's all I'm going to say on that. And then finally, we come to the last period, which goes from about 1800 to the, to the present. And this is a time when Judaism had to deal with the Enlightenment. It had to deal with the Holocaust. It had to deal with the formation of Israel in 1948. It, it has all those different things going on with it. And within it, we begin to see and talk about some of the complexities of the different kinds of Jews there are today, right? And there's so much more than I can say or begin to, to paint the picture on today. But, I, but with that context, I'll give you three big categories for a minute. The Orthodox Jews are Jews, they're the most conservative, right? They're the ones that believe not only in the written Torah being the word of God and being inspired and handed down by God, but also that the Talmud is as well. So they're going to hold on to both of those. So they're trying to hold every piece of it together. The second kind of group that's out there are what we would call conserv- the conservative Judaism, and they're ones that believe, of course, that the written law is, of course, inspired by God and is from God. And they would say that the Talmud is um, probably inspired from, you know, that it's probably of God kind of a thing. They hold it just a little bit looser. That it's not, they don't necessarily believe it is, but, but it could be. And then the final one we talk about is, is um, Reform Judaism. And it's interesting in itself. They would say the Torah is the word of God and is, is the law from God, but they would say the Talmud is just a human product. And uh, a little bit of its history, it started initially as an attempt to make Judaism more relevant by abbreviating the liturgy, adding choral music to it, and a few other things like that. Um, ultimately, the American Reform rabbis would say, looking back at the law, that the only thing we're going to focus on are the moral laws, kind of like Christianity does, where we say all the purity laws are out, but the moral laws we're going to kind of hold on to. They kind of go in that same direction. So regular diet, the priestly purity, the dress, all of that, they're not going to sweat. Um, so that is the quickest version of the history of Judaism that I can give. Before I leave it, and maybe it's good, again, as I sort of started today with talking about uh, being MLK weekend, I think Christianity has to come back again and again and own our failings. Not only in how we've dealt with some race things, but when we talk about Judaism, we have to come back and own that Christians have gotten it wrong through the ages in how we've treated Jews at times. And if you ever start to think, oh, well, we don't treat them that bad. You know, they're our brothers and sisters. We say that today, and I hope you do. But I just want to, just to give you one quick flavor for how bad it's been in the past. Martin Luther 
the great reformer, right, who's all the Protestant um, churches owe something to. This is a quote from him in 1543. He says, what shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? First, their synagogues should be set on fire. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmud. <clears throat> That's where he was on that day. We've made a lot of mistakes and errors, and, you know, that's, as again, I'll go back to our baptismal vows. We're to respect the dignity of all people, and I think we just have to own that we've made mistakes, and we try to do the best we can, you know, each day and move on. That's all I want to say on the history. I want to, I want to things are going to go much quicker now, so you can relax. Um, I want to say a few things about the core beliefs of Judaism, and I'm just going to hit these quickly in the interest of time. But the first and one of the great gifts, and some people would say one of the main things God wanted to teach in sort of the Old Testament era is monotheism. They were the ones in a time when there were other religions that said there are all these different gods. They're the ones that that said clearly to the world, there's one God, there's one God. And ultimately those who follow in their path, both Islam and Christianity are going to say there's one God, there's one God. We know there's one God. They're going to teach that creation is ex nihilo, that God created out of nothing, that God called it all into being. He's the source of everything. He creates from nothing, and he breathes life into us, and he brings things into existence. That's one of the the big beliefs that takes place. They're the ones who are going to be big on bringing the law into place, this idea that God wants our wills and his will to come together. And part of that process is giving us an ethical code to live by and in the divine law. So that's kind of the third point that I'd look at. Um, the fourth thing has to do with sin. I mean, <clears throat> Judaism would say God gave us free will. We've made decisions that have pulled us away from God. And that ultimately is, is the way sin has come into existence. And how, what we do with that, it'd be wrong to say there's no grace in the Old Testament. That's not true. That may be a characterization that we've heard in the past. There is grace. But also there, was a way, there were ways to talk about sin back then. Back when the temple existed, there was a temple sacrifice and the day of atonement and the day of trying to put all the sins on an animal. And ultimately, it was, we would say, prefiguring what Christ was going to do. But there was that whole notion of what was taking place. And then after the temple is destroyed, they go back to some language that goes way back of saying, God is more interested in obedience than in sacrifice. And the focus becomes more on orthopraxy or trying to do good deeds and trying to live things outright as a way of dealing, dealing with our sin. And then the, the final thing I would mention, and now we're going to get to some of the big differences, and I'll say more in a minute, is the belief on the Messiah. Because ultimately, they began to believe that there was a Messiah coming. The word means the anointed one. And there were lots of variations about what they thought this would be. Some thought that this was going to usher in a utopian age where love and justice would reign, that that's part of what the Messiah would do. Some thought it was going to be a political hero who would come in and do certain things and to upgrade um, the Jewish people into a, a, a more powerful place within the world. There are all these different kinds of views about what the Messiah would do, that King David's reign would go on forever. Um, so that, those are some of the core beliefs. The final thing I want to do, and again, um, this final bit, I'm moving quickly. Um, 
is just give you a few things to leave here with to ponder some of the compare and contrast that we have. And if you look at Judaism and Christianity, again, the Venn diagrams are going to overlap significantly. Their um, 39 books of the Hebrew Bible, we're all in on. They're our cousins. We, we adopt full on. That's our Old Testament that we get. This Old Covenant comes from that. Monotheism, we're completely in on. We're wholly there. Creation ex nihilo, we're in completely. The idea of sin that, we, that we've chosen to use our free will in a way that pushes God away and separates us from who we're truly meant to be, we're full in on. We're full in on the Jews being God's chosen people, that God chose them as a particular people to be used to bless the world. And ultimately, Jesus' heritage is going to come out of that place. We believe, you know, we forget sometimes that this didn't come originally from Jesus, but the Shema, this idea that you're to love God with all your heart, your soul, all of your strength, comes from Deuteronomy 6, and Jesus is going to repeat it. We're full on board with that. So we, we have all these things that we're so, comp- we agree with them more than any other religion. We agree with them. The c- complicated thing is now we get to the part of the Venn diagram that doesn't overlap and it gets to be the most important thing that Christians would say that there is. And it has to do with Jesus as the Messiah and coming back to that place. Peter Kreft, um, Kreft is one of my favorite philosophers and theologians says this, he says, Christianity and Judaism are both closer and farther apart than, two, than any other two religions in the world. So we've got this huge overlap, but we've got this huge direct difference and conflict that we have. And, you know, it gets interesting to begin to ask the question, why didn't the Jews ultimately accept Jesus? That's a really complicated question. Some of the things that people have said through the ages is talking about um, looking at why they didn't do it is perhaps looking at ha- what happened in the early years, right? And the first thing to say on that is, of course, a lot of Jews did. They say that by the year 50, one in three Jews in, in Jerusalem was a Christian. And ultimately, all the books of the New Testament, except for maybe one, are said to have been written by Jews. So we keep these things. So there were a lot of Jews that did embrace it. But then as Christianity began to embrace Gentiles, those who were not Jews, it began to put a bigger wedge in. And that that perhaps is one of the reasons why more Jews ultimately didn't come. We could sit and probably debate this and have lots of conversations about it. And there's a whole segment here that I'm going to skip in the, because I have to, um, <laughs> about why we ultimately believe Jesus is the Messiah from uh, the pages of Scripture and what, all the history that I've just given Um, The only thing I'm going to do is read two quotes to you, and then I'm going to end. The first one of these comes from the Anglican bishop, Tom Wright. He says this, Jesus' vocation was to draw onto himself the destiny of Israel, which in turn was to be the focal point for the whole world. It was meant to bless everyone. And then I want to read, I'm going to end with this quote um, from a Messianic Jew, a Jew who believes in Christ, Daniel um, Justin, Juster, sorry, who says this, a representative of Israel, Yeshu, that means Jesus, fulfills Israel's role by recapitulating its life within himself. Yeshua, like Israel, is born in dangerous straits. As Pharaoh of old, Herod orders mass annihilation of Jews, Jewish children, like Moses, 
Yeshua is spared. He goes with his family to Egypt. In the words of Matthew 2.15, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. The passage goes on to mention Israel's faithfulness. The more that God called, the less faithful was Israel. Yeshua, in contrast, is called from Egypt, and he's fully faithful. He fulfills Israel's meaning as her representative. As representative of Israel, Yeshu goes through the water of baptism by John. He can then bear Israel's sins and the sins of the world. Israel went th through the Red Sea, and in the wilderness, Yeshua is tested by Satan for 40 days in a similar manner, a parallel to Israel's 40-year wilderness wanderings. Yeshua then goes up the mountains to give the authoritative discussion and interpretation of the law, a direct revelation, not as the argued out of interpretation of the scribes. So also as Moses provided manna, Yeshua provided supernatural bread, parallel to feed the feeding of the 5,000. Even beyond these great passages, Yeshua identified with Israel through its feast, in his illustrations, in his, in his passages, in his practices. He concludes by saying he was Israel's climatic focus. There's a whole lot we can learn. There are brothers and sisters, our closest cousins. And I think there's lots for us to think about as we reflect and think about our own heritage and where they are and where we've been. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for loving us, that you've created all people of the world in your image. Help us to understand each other better and help us to seek your love and peace. And finally, Father, help us to love you with all our hearts, minds, and souls, and our neighbors as ourselves. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.